I feel like I get the point of doing it once, and it seems boring. <laughs> Maybe I am not doing it right. <laughs> Well, if your mind is wandering here and there and trying to use the walking meditation technique, then it definitely will become boring. But if you are really focusing mind on the walking, uh, as your mind uh, is fully preoccupied with the things that happen, to you when you walk, then it will not be that boring. It will be very interesting because more and more new things are uh, coming. I mentioned only very few because I did not want to <coughs> mention everything because if I mention everything at the beginning you would get really confused in addition to boring. So now <laughs> you have boring part. Uh, I wish you have uh, more time to do walking meditation. This is a very, very short uh, one and a half day retreat. You should do it uh, not only here, once you finish this short retreat, you may uh, experiment yourself in uh, other situations, maybe at home and so forth to see how uh, interesting it is. In walking, uh, not only uh, we become uh, aware of uh, uh, coordination of the breath with uh, lifting, resting, lifting, moving, putting the foot down and pressing. These are the sort of uh, six uh, uh, faces or steps in one stride. In addition, you also will experience feelings, sensations, sensations of uh, lifting. Every time you lift your heel, you experience uh, sensation also is arising and changing. The sensation that you had when you were standing, putting your feet flat on the ground, you have one sensation as you lift your foot, sensation slowly changes. When you rest the foot on your toes, you have a new sensation of pressing the foot on the ground. And you pay attention to it. And even that changes. That pressing is pressing changes. At first it is very light. If you stay on it becomes very it becomes relatively hard. And you cannot stay in that posture too long. You cannot hold the breath that long. And therefore you will have a different feeling, a feel the sensation changing. Then again, while breathing in, you lift the whole foot, you have another feeling or sensation. 
you know, I used the word sensation and feeling both uh, synonymously because we use these two uh, uh, as identical, although we have uh, sensations and feelings differentiated in uh, uh, psychology, but we like to, we use the word, these two words as uh, one. Anyway, uh, then your sensation will change when you lift the whole foot and um, move forward and put the foot down again, whole foot, and then you have another sensation. Every time you do that, your sensation changes. You can experience it. Noticing these changes in a very minutest way itself is very interesting. So long as you don't see these details, uh, it may be a little boring and, you know, uninteresting. So I would suggest that instead of uh, doing it only for a while, for a short time, uh, I would suggest that you may spend some time longer, uh, more often in your uh, meditation, you will see the difference. Uh, related to that, there was another question. Uh. Ah. What is your perspective on uh, using uh, mental notes as uh, part of meditation, that is, rising, falling, thinking, etc.? My personal uh, uh, views or perspectives is that uh, it is totally uh, unnecessary. Uh, when we use uh, words, we miss the boat, so to say. We don't see what really is happening. When you say uh, uh, rising, your, your mind will be uh, Will, will be holding on to the word rather than noticing, becoming aware of the rising. Rising is not a word. Rising is an action. Our mind can directly become aware of that action. Falling is not a word. It is an action. Uh, Thinking, if you were to think of thinking, you will have another thinking. So you, instead of reducing thinking, you increase thinking. You bring more and more. You activate the mind uh, more. We want to 
calm the mind, relax the mind by not using too many words. I have seen some places, uh, uh, some people have instructed meditators to uh, then uh, to use uh, more words like when they walk, they have to say left, right, left, right, left, just like marching in the army. Left, right, left, right. For for the movement, for the mind to notice the movement, uh, we don't have to use these words. Uh, mind does not want to know whether it is left foot or right foot. Uh, we are not trying to explain to somebody what we are doing. We want to become fully aware of what is happening. I have a lot of reservation with regard to this uh, verbalizing, conceptualizing, uh, ideation and so forth, because all this can retard the progress. We want to gain direct awareness of what really is happening. You know, in meditation, we experience numerous very, very subtle things. If you were to train the mind to label all kind of experiences, you run out of labels. Especially when you have very subtle experiences for which you don't find any label, any name. They are so subtle. Nobody has found names for them. You have to create names. Names are obsessions. And Buddha said names are obsessions. Sanya rogo, Sanya gando, Sanya sallo. Buddha says Sanya is, sanya is uh, uh, naming. The word Sanya is used for recognition, identification, signs, and so forth. Our minds, uh, we are so conditioned, so much conditioned that uh, without uh, names and labels, and, uh, we cannot uh, recognize anything. What is the name? Name doesn't mean anything. Generally, we identify, we understand things by names. If there is no name, we create a name. In uh, Buddhist literature, we see certain monks are not known, nobody knows their name, so they are called Thissa. So you can talk about Thissa, because there are nobody knows names. There is a very interesting story of uh, Anuruddha. Anuruddha was uh, one of the prominent monks. Uh, it is said that he has done so much uh, marriage in the past that uh, he was born to a very uh, affluent family and his mother spoiled him so much that she never wanted him to know the, me the word no. She never gave him in his vocabulary, there is no word, no. So one day, 
he was playing and he had a, a servant boy. He sent the boy home to bring some cake. So mother, mother had to keep a large quantity of cakes. <laughs> Whenever the son uh, sends a messenger asking for cake, she had to send some cake. That particular day, she sent cake, piece of cake after piece of cake, until she ran out of cake. When the messenger came asking for cake, she said, my dear, please go and tell my son there is no cake. So uh, he came and told Anuruddha, uh, mother said that there is no cake. Then Anuruddha said, go, bring no cake. <laughs> he thought this was a new kind of cake. <laughs> so he went and told her, <laughs> he asked me to bring no cake. <laughs> then she thought, my goodness, how can I teach him? No. So what she did, she got a plate and covered with a, a soup bowl and asked him to take it to him. <laughs> it is, and it is said that uh, the deities were shocked that this child is going to know the word <laughs> no. <laughs> it is said that they filled the, po the plate with a delicious cake. <laughs> So when this boy brought and gave it to him, he ate it. And it was more delicious than previous cakes. <laughs> Since then, he demanded mother to make no cake. <laughs> so this very good example of our uh, way of uh, trying to identify something. So if you don't find name, you create a name. You know, uh, scientists invent something. They try to pull the things here and there, and uh, if they cannot find, they bring some Latin name and game. If they if they cut a nail, if they they couldn't find it, they may, they might say nailectomy. <laughs> the kind of more they call molectomy. So some kind of ectomy they use. <laughs> what they really do is cutting something. So, in meditation, we don't have to invent names. We don't have to use names. We just have to become aware of what really is happening. When you are hungry, no matter how many times you say hungry, 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 hunger will never go away. Even if you don't say word hungry, you still feel hungry, hunger headache, any kind of feeling we experience without any word. The feelings does not appear with the particular word. <laughs> there are all kind of sensations, all kind of feelings happen, especially during meditation. So we don't try to identify them with words. We just experience impermanence of them. Impermanence itself is not a word. 
it is an occurrence, it is an event, it is a function, it is an action. So we become aware of that. And therefore, to say lifting, lifting, shifting, shifting, moving, moving, breathing, breathing, inhaling, inhaling, exhaling, exhaling, all are completely unnecessary waste of time. Uh, moreover, mind f works much faster than these words. When mind is so fast, if you try stop to find the label, what you are going to label is gone. And therefore, mind can notice things very much faster if you do not label. <coughs> and therefore, my personal uh, feeling is uh, quite uh, opposite to what you do. You know, when you drink something, various type of taste arise in your mouth. If you were to think of words, you cannot drink this. Because so many, when I drink this uh, mint tea, there is a hot feeling, a mint tea feeling, and uh, liquid feelings, and if there is sugar, that's sugar feelings. All kind of feelings uh, appear instantly. How can you label them? So, if you uh, don't label, you can identify most of them. Or recognize uh, mentally, become uh, aware of them. For sitting meditation, should one have the eyes uh, shut or open? It depends on uh, what happens when you open eyes or close eyes. When you close eyes, if you fall asleep, you may keep your eyes half open. If you open your eyes, cannot concentrate, then you may close your eyes. These are, there are no hard and fast rules with regard to whether you should close eyes or open eyes. That depends on what happens when you do one, one thing or another. <clears throat> It is hard to observe beginning, middle, and end of in-breath and out-breath. Uh, without, uh, without controlling it, any suggestion. And in fact, um, It appears to be controlling, but we don't really control when we become aware of inhaling and the beginning, middle, and end of inhaling. At the beginning, it may be like controlling, <coughs> but once we get used to it, it happens so naturally that uh, uh, becomes very easy. Moreover, by the time you finish uh, gaining full awareness of uh, the breathing, uh, you have already uh, gained uh, understanding of the full, complete breath body. The purpose of doing this uh, beginning, middle, and end of inhaling and exhaling 
is to notice the full breath body. This is called breath body. Uh, once we become aware of it, uh, mind becomes uh, quite uh, uh, used to it, then what we experience is the entire breathing, not only beginning, middle and end. Entire breathing. And uh, once you get to that level, then beginning, middle and end will disappear automatically. Only at the beginning it may find sometimes uh, difficult. Once it is, once you are used to it, then what you experience is uh, like uh, either uh, re uh, cycle of breath uh, taking place or some kind of a cylindrical object going in and coming out. Until such time, the beginning, middle and end uh, should be noticed. Uh, once you reach that level where the, you, are, you became aware of the whole breath body, then beginning, middle and end is not necessary. Describe rapture as regards the jhanas. Uh, rapture, uh, sometimes uh, uh, joy is translated as rapture in some places. Uh, some call it joy. Some even call it bliss, uh, which happens... Uh, uh, before you gain true uh, happiness. <clears throat> A rapture arises in anticipation of something that's going to happen. Happiness arises when what is anticipated is happened. So, uh, I think you all are familiar with that very famous uh, analogy of a traveler in a desert. When, uh, when somebody is traveling in a desert, uh, he is tired, thirsty, hungry, full of worries, not knowing where he goes. Suddenly that person meets Another person is coming towards him with uh, wet hair, wet cloth, wet body, fresh face. So this person who is tired and thirsty would ask him, Sir, I am also traveling in the same desert and I am thirsty, dry, full of worries. You seem to be quite fresh, a lot of... Uh, dripping water is all around you. What is the secret? He would say, well, I happen to meet an oasis in the desert. I jump into it, swam in it, drank water, ate lotus roots, lotus buds, lotus flowers, and refreshed myself. Hearing that, 
this person will be rapturous. And his rapture or joy, uh, it continues to increase, increase as he moves on towards the direction this person came from. As he goes near, he can hear birds flying over there, birds singing, and as he goes closer, he can hear children playing. Then as he goes further, he can hear people, you know, using water, splashing at each other. And then he can hear somebody jumping into water. Every tiny little thing he hears increases his joy. As soon as he saw the water, <clears throat> just like the other person with the with the cloth, he jump into it and drink water, swim and spend a lot of time in it, and then comes out of water and stretching his hands and legs on the beach, on the bank of the lake. He stretches his hands and legs, relaxing and saying, "Ah, oh, what a happiness!" He's now completed his uh, anticipated. Uh, uh, happiness. So happiness is contentment. Once you are content, fulfilled, then you have happiness. Rapture or joy is what happens before this in anticipation of happiness. This is how we roughly can explain the difference between these two uh, stages. Uh, Rapture that we that in this description is not uh, the same as um, ordinary uh, excitement. When you are ordinarily excited, you will uh, jump up and down. You will kiss. You will hug. You will sing. You will even cry uh, out of joy. But this is completely opposite of that. You become calmer and calmer and calmer and relaxed and relaxed. And then you gain, when, when, when you become happy, then your approach to calmness is complete. That leads to concentration. So these are totally two different type of uh, uh, experiences. Ordinary uh, pleasure-oriented joy and uh, uh, calmness or peace-oriented joy. Is it incorrect for unhelpful to approach meditation not just as a means to end suffering, but also as a means to cultivate happiness, joy, and bliss. Why aren't these things emphasized more in Buddhism? Actually, <clears throat> this is also a very good question. It's just related to what I already mentioned. Overcoming uh, 
suffering uh, definitely uh, unfolds joy and happiness. Every moment we reduce any tiny little suffering, the result is joy. Result is happiness. The first we have to overcome these nagging difficulties, aches and pains, primarily basic and then deeper kind of uh, uh, anxiety, worry, fear, tension, and so forth. When we get rid of them, the result is just joy and happiness. In fact, we can talk about joy, and just like we mentioned in jhanic experience, when we attain jhanas, it has a joy, it has a bliss, it has a peace, it has a happiness. And uh, before we gain jhanas, any time we practice meditation very, you know, uh, meaningfully, sensibly, we gain joy and happiness that instant. The moment we let go of our clinging, that very moment, it may not last too long, that very moment we experience a tremendous bliss. When we let go of our hatred, that moment we experience bliss, peace, happiness. So it is true that we talk about uh, uh, getting rid of suffering, but we really mean is getting peace, joy, and happiness. Why we don't say that uh, at first is because people, without uh, getting rid of uh, the cause of problems, they can artificially try to create happiness, which is not going to work. We are trying to, as I mentioned yesterday when I was talking about um, precept, First, we have to abstain from certain things in order to gain certain things, positive things. Meditation is called cultivation. What do we do when we cultivate land? We have to get to the rocks and thorns and weeds and so forth and then cultivate. Then we get the crops. Similarly, when we practice meditation, we must get rid of various negative things in order to experience the positive. So, uh, in fact, no harm in uh, talking about joy, happiness, bliss, and peace uh, of meditation. No harm in doing that. Perhaps uh, for some people it might even work uh, uh, better. Uh, people, especially uh, people who have a sort of negative attitude towards meditation, it is better to talk about uh, the positive side, joy, happiness. Hey, come meditate, you will be blissful. You will be happy. Instead of saying, uh, you can get rid of your suffering, come and meditate. They may not like that. So, it's a very good approach. <laughs> what are some practical ways one can develop 
loving-kindness for oneself? Actually, the very, very important question, the most practical way is, um, first, one must ask oneself, uh, most of the time people have a very uh, low esteem of themselves, no confidence, uh, they don't trust themselves, uh, they uh, think they are always, they are a, they are a failure, uh, nothing works for them and so forth. And therefore, they always must uh, uh, try to get out of this negative state by cultivating loving friendliness. Uh, Thinking, (coughs) loving friendliness, as I mentioned, has three levels. One, verbal level. Second, thinking level. Third, feeling level. Start with verbal level. Talking to oneself. Bringing a wholesome thought into mind. Talking to oneself, saying, well, I am not always a failure. I am not always uh, incompetent. I am not always uh, of uh, uh, one with unproductive. I have a lot of potentials. I must <coughs> uh, unfold these potentials, these abilities. I love myself. I must love myself. Without loving myself, I won't let these wholesome things come up, unfold within myself. I love myself, and therefore I should not let myself down by myself. The more I think negatively about myself, more negative I will be. That is just waste of time. I can do a lot of good things. So I must love myself. I must learn first to love myself. <coughs> when I love myself, I can relax. I can be pleasant to others. I can uh, increase my skills, my abilities, my performances, my appearance, my work. I can do a lot of things when I love myself and cultivate loving friendliness towards myself. I cultivate loving friendliness towards myself to serve others. Not only to to love myself, then it will be self-love. <clears throat> it is more selfish. But I want to cultivate loving friendliness towards myself in order to benefit from it and also share it with others so that I can serve dual purpose by practicing loving friendliness towards me. So this is the way one has to talk to oneself, think about practicing loving friendliness towards oneself, and then keep repeating that. You know, if you say every day that uh, you are bad, you are negative, you don't do anything, you cannot do anything, this and that, you will be that. So you go to cultivate thinking wholesome, positive way uh, er, to arouse your own 
innate uh, hidden uh, skills. And then uh, I have uh, made a little formula for reciting uh, as a part of our metta meditation, uh, which goes like, uh, like this. May I be well, happy, and peaceful. May no harm come to me. May no difficulties come to me. May no problems come to me. May I always meet with success. May I also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. If you repeat this <coughs> every day, you will see some little spark of light in you, little, little spark of uh, brightness arising in you if you are totally negative. And if you repeat it every day, every time you feel anything negative, you find some positive results. And then, <coughs> this is the verbal level. Then, thinking level. Don't think negatively about you. Always think that you can do something. You can be productive. You can be uh, creative. You can be helpful to yourself. Think. And then begin to feel. Of course, all this don't happen instantly at once or in few hours. But we have to, as long as you have cultivated negative things, that long you have to cultivate positive things to bring them back. So you may try that. I'm sure that will work quite well. <coughs> you know, I started this little meditation with children in Malaysia when I was there. Every evening our neighbors' children come and play in the temple ground. So in the evening I collected these little children, 10, 12-year-old little boys and girls, and uh, bring to the shrine room and uh, made them sit and uh, gave this little meditation, metta meditation. They instantly memorized it. And whenever they are together, they just say this. When they went home, they recited this. And parents seem to love it very much. And now I use it whenever we practice meditation, we uh, mention this. And it's very, I feel very good about it. I feel very good about talking about good things. Um, what this gentleman mentioned, the gentleman or lady mentioned about talking about wholesome positive things from meditation, I go for it. I like it very much. Uh, we don't have to say bad things or negative things all the time. Are walking meditation and sitting meditation equal in their effect? <coughs> Not always. In walking meditation we have movement activities and therefore gaining real deep concentration would become difficult in walking. In sitting meditation, we can sit still, steady, uh, very upright posture, 
and gain better concentration. But <coughs> both become equal when we uh, develop concentration in, in sitting meditation and uh, start using that in walking. <coughs> that even can uh, bring the same results. You remember one individual who has attained uh, uh, full enlightenment in doing so? Who is that? Venerable Ananda. He attained enlightenment not in sitting, but in when he, when he was trying to lay, lie down or sit down, he attained enlightenment. Another individual is called uh, Chakkupala. Chakkupala decided never to lie down. He was sitting and standing and walking. So one day while he was walking, medita meditating, he attained enlightenment. So uh, walking concentration becomes equal to the sitting concentration when sitting concentration is strong. Walking will be like sleep walk, dream walk. You even won't feel the body. Body becomes so light when you do walking meditation with concentration or when you gain concentration in walking meditation. These four postures are compared to four wheels of a vehicle. When you want to balance a vehicle, you have to balance all the wheels. Uh, similarly, in order to balance the uh, practice of our postures, we got to use all the postures uh, in meditation. Then it doesn't matter in which posture we are in, we can gain the results. <clears throat> Here is another question. Vipassana is called insight meditation. What are we supposed to be uh, getting insight into? Is it only a personal insight or is the aim a uh, higher purpose. And uh, how is that insight achieved? Is uh, if we are only following our breath. Okay. When we talk about insight, uh, we mean uh, something uh, uh, very, very deep. Ordinarily, when we, in our regular daily, ordinary conversation, we say, so-and-so is insightful, so-and-so has insight, I got insight, and so forth. These are all very superficial kind of insight. But the insight we gain through meditation is uh, insight to uh, eliminate all our psychic irritants. 
uproot our insight, we use the insight to uproot our greed, hatred and delusion. In the first place, <coughs> insight should arouse our uh, wisdom to understand the greed. How much we understand greed? How much, how much we have understanding of greed? Not very much. We, we have, you know, uh, half and half, uh, very half a said uh, way of even looking at greed. We don't even want to think about it. Why is that? Because we don't have enough insight. When we have deep insight, we will see greed very, very clearly. What it really does to us. I give you one example. Buddha said uh, this very, very um, simple, but it has a deep meaning. Yo sukhang abhinandati, so dukhang abhinandati. Meaning, one who enjoys pleasure enjoys pain. Can you see the inside there? It is like saying one who eats cake with poison eats poison. Suppose there's a piece of cake that has poison. Cake has poison like oil, sugar, starch, grease, all kinds of things in there. Especially if you have diabetic, that is poison. So, in that you don't taste the poison. You taste sugar, oil, grease, sweetness, starch, all this. But even if there is poison, you don't feel it. But you enjoy it. Just like any junk food tastes the best. Any junk food. Because they have grease, they have fat, they have oil, they have sugar, they have all kinds of things. And they taste very good. So, we don't know that. You know, it has a cumulative effect. After a certain period of time, we can see the effect in our body. Now, Buddha's statement is much deeper than that, this very superficial example. He said, Yo sukhang abhinandati, so dukhang abhinandati, one who enjoys pleasure, enjoys pain. So he said, uh, in, a, another, in a, another example, is uh, uh, given in the series of examples in the first sermon, he said, uh, not to get what one wants, is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. And to get what one wants also is suffering. Can you see the inside there? So, uh, when we practice meditation, we can delve into the depth of this insight. Because things begin little by little, iota by iota, 
begin to unfold in our mind. As mind becomes clearer and clearer and clearer, we begin to see this insight. I mean, this insight arises. So what the Buddha says in practicing meditation, you said, you asked me, uh, by focusing mind on the breath, how can we get this insight? Very true. Even the breath itself has all we need to gain insight. That is why there is a special discourse called Anapana Satisutta. Anapana Satisutta means the discourse on in-breathing and out-breathing. That's all. In that entire discourse, <laughs> he talk about in-breathing and out-breathing. Practice mindfulness of inhaling and exhaling. And that is the entire discourse, which arouses four foundations of mindfulness, seven factors of enlightenment four times. This in-breathing and out-breathing is divided into four groups. Each group has four subdivisions, which are called tetrads, four tetrads, 16 parts. When we practice the first tetrad, first four, when we complete that, we practice seven factors of enlightenment. What are the seven factors of enlightenment? Mindfulness, I don't have to say in factors, factors, factors. Number one is mindfulness. Number two is investigation. Number three is effort. Number four, uh, rapture. Number five, tranquility. Number six, concentration. Number seven, equanimity. All these seven factors of enlightenment can be cultivated, will be cultivated, when we practice mindfulness of breathing, the first group, first tetrad. When we practice the second tetrad of the mindfulness of breathing, we practice seven factors of enlightenment once again. When we practice the third tetrad, when we end complete, we practice seven factors of enlightenment for the third time. When we practice the last tetrad, we practice the seven factors of enlightenment for the fourth time. So, breath itself is a very powerful subject. Why is that? Because everything we want to know in Vipassana meditation is in it. For instance, when we breathe, what do, we, what do we use for, for meditation? In Vipassana meditation, we use the five aggregates. What are the five aggregates? Form, feeling, perception, thought, and consciousness. In the breath, we can find all these five aggregates. For instance, the breath is body. Breath body. When we focus mind on the entire breathing process, beginning, middle, and end, and so forth, what we are doing is trying to understand entire breathing process. It is something physical. As you know, breath is called prana in Sanskrit, pana in Pali, 
Last evening we say, Pānāti Pāta Vermani Sikhāpadam Samādhyāmi. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking life of other beings. Pāna means life. Prāna in Sanskrit means life. Because that is what keeps us alive, the breath. Therefore it is called life. And that is physical. The oxygen that we breathe in and out is not something metaphysical, but it is physical. And in this physical, in this, in this breathing, we cannot breathe without feeling. We feel the breath. So the breath is the body, or the five aggregates, breath is the body. What are the five aggregates again? Body, feeling, perceptions, thoughts and consciousness. The breath is the body. We cannot breathe without feeling. We feel the breath. Inhaling, exhaling, short breath, long breath, deep breath, shallow breath, beginning breath, end breath, middle breath, and so forth and so on. We feel at least one or two of them any given time when we breathe. That is the feeling. Among many feelings, that is one type of feelings. Sometimes even in the breath, we will have a pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling. When we cannot breathe, we, have, we will have an unpleasant feeling. When we breathe very comfortably, we have a pleasant feeling. When it goes naturally, we have indifferent or neutral feelings. So in the breath itself, we have three types of feelings. Then, mentally we perceive, physically we perceive the breath. That is our perception. We cognize it, recognize it, and we identify it, we know it, we name it, and that is our perception. The breath has perceived, we perceive the breath. Then we have attention. Attention is a mental formation, volitional formations. And thinking we breathe. We have intention, we have attention. That is volitional formations. And then, that is the fourth aggregate. The last aggregate is consciousness. We, we have to be conscious to breathe. Even in, in sleep, we have subconsciousness is there. If we are totally void of consciousness, we cannot breathe. When we become totally unconscious, all the, the, the subconscious also is gone, we cannot breathe. So the consciousness is there. So <clears throat> all the five aggregates are there. Then what we do with them? We see breath is impermanent. Breath is impermanent. We can experience it, no mm, secret in that. Our perception of the breath also is impermanent. Attention or volitional formations of the breath also impermanent. Consciousness of the breath is impermanent. Feeling of the breath is impermanent. So we see impermanence. What we do in inside meditation, first thing we do is seeing impermanence. Friends, we don't see impermanence. No. 
we see only superficial impermanence. After many years we see our grey hair, then we think, gee, I have been impermanent. This hair was impermanent. After many years I see my skin wrinkled, then I think, gee, my skin is impermanent. But I never saw impermanence as uh, impermanence in action, in work. When we practice inside meditation, that is what we are trying to gain, to gain the awareness of impermanence when it is in action. That is why it is called Kaya Anupasana. Kaya Anupasana means, that's a very beautiful word. There are two words, one is Anupasana, other is Vipassana. Vipassana does not arise without Anupasana. Anupasana means seeing it exactly as it is happening. Seeing as it is happening. When we see something as it is happening, then Vipassana arises, insight arises. I mentioned in our walking, in walking, a lot of move, movements are taking place. How many of us know the movements? We know we lift one foot in one place and put it in another place. In between, what happened, we don't know. If we watch mindfully, do walking mindfully, slowly, we can see many, 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 many little changes, movement. That is what is called impermanence. Impermanence is there all the time changing, but we don't know them, don't see them, don't perceive them, don't have insight into them. So, uh, the insight we gain is, one is, things are always, everything is impermanent, everything is permanently impermanent. <laughs> you know, it is not impermanent today and tomorrow permanent. But things are permanently impermanent. And seeing the things permanently impermanent is insight. Unfortunately, because of our ignorance, we have a distorted perception. Superficially we know things are impermanent, and then we go ahead, what the heck, we just hang on to them. <laughs> we cling to them, uh, although we know, you know, uh, intellectually, they are impermanent, but we cling to them. So, our, when we, uh, that is why Buddha said, yo sukhang abhinandati, so dukhang abhinandati, while, while uh, experiencing impermanence, the person does not know impermanence, and without knowing impermanence, the person cling to it. That is how suffering arises. Suffering arises not because things are impermanent, but because of unawareness of impermanence, we cling to impermanent things. When we cling to impermanent things, since impermanent things are permanently impermanent, they betray us. 
they undermine us, they let us down. That is the suffering that arises. We see this happening every single moment when we meditate. That is the insight. When this insight arises, another insight arises. That is, now two types of insight arise now. One is seeing impermanence in its uh, most uh, rudimentary, fundamental, basic, grassroot level. Second is clinging to impermanent things make us unhappy because things that we clung to betray us, let us down. The suffering arises, we can see that. That is the second insight. Third insight is even more profound and deep. Not too many people are even willing to get that insight. That insight is the insight of selflessness. When we talk about that insight, let alone insight, even, even the statement that there is no self make people angry. I remember somebody, some time ago I wrote a paper and I gave to somebody to correct my English. That person took it and kept it for six months. So one day he came back. <clears throat> so we had a walk. While walking, uh, I was thinking how to break this news, how to ask him this question. I felt very uncomfortable. So I was thinking, thinking how to use uh, diplomatic words, very uh, nice words uh, to frame the question. Very tactful way I want to ask him because I want, don't want him to get upset. Having talked of various things about his family, his job, and where he traveled, what he did, and whether he was... Then he said all kind of things, then said, you must be pretty busy. Uh, that is why perhaps you didn't have much time to look at my paper. <laughs> said. He said, no, 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 I look at the paper. I read the paper. As soon as I come across the sentence that there is no self, I got so angry I threw away the paper. You see? I never saw the paper again. <laughs> he was so angry, he never wanted to look at the paper. And I said to myself, yes, there go my ego. <laughs> Along with my paper, ego also went. I never saw the paper. So Buddha said, people tremble, they shake up, they get angry. They are frightened. They say, I have no soul. What am I? It is bottomless abyss without soul and self. That is the feeling people get. And uh, only when we practice meditation, gain true deep insight of impermanence, we have to have deep insight into impermanence to realize selflessness. That is the third insight we gain from uh, meditation. We can use the breath alone to see this, uh, but if it is not uh, tangible or gross enough, we can use the body, we can, the rest of the body, we can use the other feelings, we can 
whenever when we want to gain insight don't look at anything under the sun except your own body your feelings your perceptions your thoughts and your consciousness that is the world these five aggregates are our world each and every one of us has a world my world is these five aggregates unfortunately we don't have time to explain these things uh, in detail uh, but that is the truth so when you see insight gain insight uh, this is the insight we gain friends i have uh, many questions i want to finish these two questions short questions please uh, differentiate the first two jhanas uh, how many of your family with jhanas two yeah three four eh huh? question is asking me to differentiate the first two jhanas <coughs> there are uh, eight jhanas according to sutras and nine jhanas according to abhidhamma jhana means highly concentrated state of mind it has levels first level second level third level and so on they don't first four don't have names last four have names anyway the first two jhanas meaning first two levels of deep concentration the difference between these two is uh, the first jhanic level you have uh, vitakka vichara vitakka vichara uh, translated into english as initial application of thought and sustained application of thought which means nothing what do you mean by initial application of thought so i say in the first jhana there are two types of thoughts these thoughts are called thought of loving friendliness and thought of compassion these are the two types of thought you begin your meditation jhana meditation you begin with these thoughts you begin with brahma vihara brahma vihara means metta karuna mudita upekha loving friendliness compassion appreciative joy and equanimity these are the four types of thoughts you start when you practice jhana as i mentioned you practice them in three levels verbal level thinking level and feeling level when you come to when you come to feeling level you just feel so calm relaxed peaceful no individuals are in your mind no faces in your mind no persons or beings in your mind all you have is that uh, rhythm of breathing you breathe with the rest of the world you know that the world is breathing expanding contracting expanding contracting that's all you feel 
So you feel you are breathing with the rest of the world as one unit. That is the kind of feeling you get. With that feeling, you gain very good concentration. That is not very deep. You still can hear. You still can feel. You still can uh, uh, experience things within yourself. But your calm, peaceful, relaxed mind is so focused on this breathing with the rest of the world. You still hear, but you don't pay attention to them. That is your first jhana, very roughly speaking. Second jhana is when you, after all, you lose interest in this. Whenever you do something, for the first time it is so wonderful, so exciting, so powerful, so liking. Second, third, fourth, fifth time you experience it, it slowly diminishes its return. Law of diminishing return operates. We study it in economy. Law of diminishing return. That applies to everything. So when you experience the first jhana and keep repeating it again and again and again and again, you slowly lose interest in it. And then, when the mind loses interest in it, mind does not pay attention to it, mind goes to something else. That is a very natural thing of the natural way the mind operates. So when you lose interest in that, it goes to a stage where there are no thoughts. No thoughts. That is your second jhana. In the first jhana you have this thought of friendliness and compassion, since it becomes stale and uninteresting, the mind does not pay attention to it. It wants to stay in a state where there are no thoughts. That is what is called noble silence. Aryotunni bhava jhana. The jhana that attains without thoughts is called aryotunni bhava, noble silence jhana. That is where we really, we, we, we will have a real noble silence. Although we write, you know, in a meditation, you sign, uh, observe noble silence. That is not noble silence. Noble silence is the silence when there are no thoughts in the mind. That is the second jhana. This is how we differentiate first and the second jhana. In fact, uh, jhana is a very profound subject. I have written three books on that. My uh, uh, PhD dissertation is on jhana, called uh, Critical Analysis of Jhanas in Theravada Buddhist Meditation, 430-some pages. <laughs> and then I wrote another book, Path of Serenity and Insight, about 250 pages, also on jhana. And then I wrote another simple uh, book called The Jhanas in Meditation, about 100 pages. And therefore, uh, this, uh, you can see, it's a very, very profound uh, subject, and it takes uh, some time to uh, study, even as a theory, and uh, take more time to practice to gain the jhana. 
The last question I'd like to answer this evening is please describe uh, stream entry. Very difficult question. I can say, say you know, when I give uh, brief answers to this kind of questions, I can confuse people because these are the questions that requires a long, detailed answer. But uh, since we have limited time, stream entry, what is the stream? One day, Buddha asked Venerable Sariputta in front of uh, monks, Sariputta soto soto tuchuti kingpana asma Sariputta soto. Sariputta sota sota, you hear the word sota sota. What do you mean by sota? Sota means uh, either here, our ears are called sota in Pali. We say sotancha pajanati, saddecha pajanati, yancha tadubhayam padichu pajati, sanyojanam tancha pajanati, and so forth. Sota means ear. Or sota means stream. Nadi sotovya. They are sota means water stream. But when Buddha asked the Venerable Sariputta this question, what did he mean by sota? Instead of uh, mentioning the ear or water, he said, I may worry what Tangyukumagu Bhante Soto Tivuchati. This very same noble eightfold path is called Sota, Venerable Sariputta said. Then Buddha, Buddha asked in front of many monks for the monks to know the meaning of the word Sota. Then Buddha asked another question Kingpana Asma Sariputta Sota Panno Tivuchati. What is the uh, meaning of sota panna? Vendabhan Sariputra said, that the person who enters the noble eightfold path is called sota panna. <coughs> meaning, one who enters the sota, uh, for noble, noble eightfold path in a very special way. What is the special way? We all keep practicing Noble Eightfold Path. Every one of them. Not once, two, three, four times, or not one or two of them, but all the eight. We keep practicing, 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 practicing.